Hello, welcome back to the Restore Our Planet podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. This week for episode five, I'm joined by Alan Watson Featherston, the founder for Trees for Life. For decades, Alan has been at the forefront of conservation and eco-restoration across not just his home nation of Scotland, but much of the UK and across the globe. He's a famous face in the environmental world and has given a number of influential TED Talks and speeches. Today, we discuss how over the past millennia, Scotland became the wet desert and the pushback to reclaim ancient woodlands, how rewilding is becoming the much needed solution and much, much more. If you like this episode, would like to follow Alan's work, please follow links in the description. And if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreourplanet.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone listening. Thank you for uh, tuning in. I'm here with Alan Watson Featherston, who is up in Scotland. And Alan, how are you? Hi, good morning, Jack. I'm fine. Yes. Um... It's uh, spring, it's uh, autumn equinox today, so it's the an important day in the cycle of the year, equal day and night. And uh, as is typical, we've got lots of wind here, a little bit of rain, so um, it's an elemental day, and that's great. I love it. <laughs> it's Scottish weather, <laughs> fantastic. Mm-hmm. Would you mind? Obviously, you've been heavily involved with uh, sort of reforesting and working with trees um, in Scotland over many decades now. I was hoping if you wouldn't mind just. Uh, sharing with us a little bit about your motivation, your background, and you know what what led you to where you are with your work today. Oh, hey, so um, I live in the Thindhorn community on the Murrayfirth coast in northeast Scotland. I came here in 1978. I grew up in central Scotland, uh, but I moved up here because of the community. And in 1979, on a, a day trip from Thindhorn, we went to a place called Glenafric. Uh, which is southwest of Inverness and uh, I'd heard it was a nice place and when I got there in a little minibus full of people it kind of blew my mind um, because I'm one of those people who grew up thinking that the bare hills and desolate empty glens of Scotland were natural and in my early 20s I'd spent some time in Canada particularly in British Columbia where there's big mountains huge trees large forests full of wildlife and um, coming back to Scotland, you know, was a bit painful, you know, to see this empty landscape. So when I went to Glen Africa in 1979, driving up into the Glen, there were these wonderful old Scots pines uh, with interesting shapes, their branches dripping with lichens, overhanging a gorge on a river. And it was like, wow, this is like Canada. I had no idea there was anything like this in Scotland. So I began going there on a regular basis when I had access to a car. And of course, Glen Affric <clears throat> is mostly um, managed by uh, Forestry and Land Scotland, what's now called what the Forestry Commission was before. I changed its name recently here in Scotland. And they have always said it's the largest extent of least disturbed forest in the UK. So it's one of the best remnants of the Caledonian forest. Uh, old pines, 250, 300 years old, um, lots of other trees, and it's been relatively undisturbed. So I was really touched by the beauty of the place, and I began going out there regularly. But um, I noticed uh, very quickly that all the trees were old, and there were no young trees. Um, there were seedlings. Uh, the trees produced viable seed. The seeds germinated, but all the seedlings were eaten because there were far too many deer. And they were out of balance with no predators to control them. And they were eating all the young trees. So there was this generation gap of about 200 years 
between the old trees and the overgrazed seedlings which got eaten to death you know before they got any height at all so that i saw that but on one area of the glen a visionary forester in the early 60s had put up a fence to keep the deer out just to see what would happen and there'd been tremendous regeneration of young trees uh, all over the place thousands and thousands of them and it was very clear to me that nature needed a helping hand to enable this forest to recover because if similar things were not done the old remnants uh, the old trees would die off the seed source would go and that would be the end of it and it would just decline and become another desolate area like so much of the highlands I'd also read enough by then to know that the highlands were originally covered in forest um, and uh, the famous um, British conservationist in the 1950s, Sir Frank Fraser Darling, you know, coined the term the wet desert to describe the highlands of Scotland after spending a lot of time uh, studying and researching up here and uh, we're not dry, sandy, arid landscape, but biologically we're desertified country because we've lost most of our biodiversity and it's only in places like Glen Affric that we've got remnants of it. So I became aware of this in the early late 70s early 80s and I kept thinking somebody needs to do something about it, somebody needs to take action otherwise these remnants are going to disappear and after a little while it dawned on me well maybe I'm that somebody, I see the problem, I feel that the land, the trees you know seemingly calling out for help um, maybe I should respond. And that's how I came to start the charity Trees for Life. I made the commitment to launch it in 1986 at a big conference here in the Findhorn community. And at the time I had no background in ecology. I had no access to land. I had no resources, but I had this deep personal connection with this particular area and this feeling of, I need to do something to make a difference. And out of that has come Trees for Life and all that's been accomplished by the staff and volunteers and supporters of that organisation um, in all the years since then. So that's a very quick introduction to how I came to get involved in it. It came from my personal connection with the land, my personal experience of seeing, you know, the culmination of thousands of years of deforestation impinging on the last remnants of the old forest that still survive in the highlands and that recognizing that we are the last generation that can change that we can make a difference because in another 30 years 50 years all those old trees will be gone and the seed source is gone so it's time to act now and that was what motivated me to start this fantastic i i like many of my generation and those before i've always thought of the scottish landscape as the kind of the natural state of it is as Mr Darling referred to as a, a wet desert that's what it seemed to me is kind of like the natural state of Scotland um so what what exactly unfolded over the past centuries or maybe even longer to go from you know largely forested uh landscape to what it is now quite sort of barren and and, and bleak and empty well, I think it's important to kind of um, take a little bit further step backwards than just the last few centuries. Uh, if we go back to the end of the last um, glacial epoch, the last ice age about 10,000 years ago, Scotland was treeless, virtually treeless, because the whole country had been covered in, particularly in the highlands, by massive ice sheets and glaciers. And when the climate warmed up about 10,000 years ago, um, vegetation recolonized because that's what the earth does. The earth always wants to be green. Life will colonize any available surface. 
So it starts with plants, with lichens, um, and as soon as you get some vegetation, um, insects appear, birds come to eat the insects, bring seeds in their droppings, which they deposit, wildlife returns, and you get this whole reweaving of the web of life. It's a natural process that occurs. Um, so that's what happened in Scotland about 10,000 years ago. And over time, <clears throat> most of the land became covered in trees and the forest composition changed. Initially, you get pioneer forest, um, early colonizing species like birch and rowan. And then later on, you get the, the later successional, more climax species in much of the highlands that Scots pine dominated, but in lower elevations where the soils were better and particularly more in the West, uh, it was an oak dominated temperate rainforest. So um, scientists who studied this through pollen analysis estimate that the forest reached its sort of peak about 4,000 years ago and then went into decline. And that coincided with both a change in climate and the arrival of large numbers of people. And the history since then is one of, I think, gradual attrition that um, people cleared the land where they settled. They cut down trees for fuel, uh, for fires, for cooking, uh, for making huts and shelters, for making boats, for making tools and weapons. And I suspect that the, the forest frontier was pushed back um, year by year, century by century, over a long period of time. And we know that in Roman uh, times, 2000 years ago, roughly, um, um, the country was still largely forested because the Romans coined the term Caledonia for Scotland and Caledonia in Roman in Latin means wooded heights. So there were a lot of trees here then. And at that time, we still had all our indigenous wildlife all the way up to and including uh, the European brown bear, uh, the wolf, the lynx and um, moose and so forth. So um, undoubtedly some forest clearance had happened, but the bulk of the land probably was still covered in trees then. And as the population expanded, more trees got cut down. And one of the realities of uh, Scotland is that because we're a cool oceanic climate with high levels of rainfall, particularly in the west of the country, um, once you get the tree cover removed, uh, the trees act as giant pumps. So they pump water out of the soil up into their branches and lose it through evaporation. Um, when you have the trees removed, you get peat starting to form which is partially decomposed vegetation and that acts like a giant sponge and it holds the water and the soils become acidified and that's what's led to um, this term the wet desert now so much of the country has uh, suffered from this. Peat bogs are natural ecosystems that occur in flat, bowl, in flat basins and bowls but we've got peat on slopes in Scotland which should not be there. That's a result of deforestation. I think so that's that's kind of the situation we've inherited yeah, but you just mentioned a moment ago that uh, parts of Scotland are actually a rainforest, and I think when most people hear the you know the word rainforest, they think of the Amazon, they think of West Africa, they think of Borneo, etc. What exactly makes a rainforest a rainforest in sort of a, a temperate climate, as opposed to tropical? Yeah, well, there there are different types. Of there are different types of rainforest around the world. The Amazon is a classic example of a, a tropical rainforest. 
but um, in latitudes further away from the equator, uh, you get temperate rainforests. And typically they occur in most parts of the world in latitudes like ours in Scotland on the west coast of um, land masses. So if you go to North America, the temperate rainforests are in British Columbia, Washington State and Alaska. If you go to the southern hemisphere, the temperate rainforests are in the west coast of Tasmania, they're in uh, the South Island of New Zealand, they're in Chile. And um, there's also pockets of temperate rainforest still on the west coast of Norway. So we had them here in Scotland and much of Ireland was covered in temperate rainforest and indeed parts of England too, uh, all the way from Wistman's Wood down in um, the south um, west corner uh, on the edge of Dartmoor to the Lake District uh, and Snowdonia in Wales, all of those western seaboards of the British Isles originally had temperate rainforest and today there are small remnants of them left and temperate rainforests typically in the British Isles at least are broadleaf trees, typically oak, hazel and so forth and they're characterized by an abundance of ferns including epiphytic ferns that grow on the trees themselves, uh, lots of moss and certain uh, richness of lichens there's a whole community of uh, lichens that thrive in these temperate rainforest environments, typically growing on the branches and trunks of trees. So if you go into a temperate rainforest, it's very different to a tropical rainforest where you've maybe got lots of palm fronds and strangler figs and things like that. Temperate rainforest, you've got lots of mosses and ferns. It's a very green, lush, rich landscape. It's very interesting. I didn't know that. Um... Okay, so you've mentioned, along with the situation with forest cover, a few species there. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, rewilding and the work that you've been doing in Scotland. Yes, well, rewilding is a term that's become popularised in the past 10 years or so, but I actually prefer the term ecological restoration. Um, which has got a much longer history to it. And um, when I started um, work to help the forest in Glen Africa and started the charity Trees for Life, it was started as a, an ecological restoration project. Now, in nature, ecosystems all suffer disturbance from time to time. Um, and that disturbance might be a hurricane hitting somewhere or it might be a volcanic eruption like is happening in one of the Canary Islands as we speak today or um, it can be forest fire, lots of those happening in the world today. So ecosystems periodically go through massive disturbance and they all have an inbuilt process of recovery. That's what happens and uh, many years Years ago I went to Mount St Helens in Washington State in the US which erupted in 1980 and devastated a huge area of forest awesome. with mount, several feet of ash and when I was there 13 years later all the young trees were growing through the ash and I watched chipmunks you know running across the surface with their cheeks bulging carrying seeds because that's what they do and that is the natural process of recovery of an ecosystem. So when we talk about rewilding or ecological restoration, what I'm talking about is human assistance for a natural process. 
Ecosystems are like our own human bodies. If I cut myself, my body has a natural recovery process. A scab forms over the cut and under the scab, you know, the tissues heal, a new skin forms. And after a certain time, the scab falls off and my body is back to normal and good health. So ecosystems do exactly the same thing. Unfortunately, because of the scale of human impacts on the planet today and the numbers of people, we prevent that recovery process in most places. So ecological restoration or rewilding for me is primarily about stopping that prevention of a natural process and then assisting it where possible to catalyze and accelerate it. So in Scotland, for example, the, the factor, the main factor that's inhibiting the recovery of the forest is that we have far too many herbivores on the land. In Scotland, we have 5.4 million people and we have 6 million sheep. So people are outnumbered by sheep and sheep are non-native. They don't belong here um, and they range all over the land. And also we have far too many deer, particularly red deer, uh, the numbers of which have more than doubled in the past 40 years and they have no predators anymore. Now red deer naturally is a woodland animal that spends most of its time in a forest. But today, of course, in Scotland, people think of the red deer as, you know, the, the stag out on the treeless landscape, you know, viewing the, viewing the scene. And, you know, that's a false image. Uh, the true image is that deer should be in the forest, but we've disturbed the natural balance. We've cut down most of the forest. We've burned it, we've cleared it. There's about 1% of the native forest left. And deer numbers have more than doubled in 40 years, and there's no predators. So the deer are literally eating their own habitat to death, and that's been happening for 200 years. So that's the imbalance that we've created. It's not the deer's fault, it's humans who've done that. So that's why we need to take action to redress those natural, uh, those imbalances in nature. And that uh, redressing is either reducing the deer numbers, which is happening in some areas, or putting up deer fences to keep deer out. Or, and we've not attempted this in Scotland yet, bringing back the predators. Because predators, although they um, kill their prey, their impact is much more profound in other ways. A wolf, for example, in general, uh, is successful in its hunting attempts to catch deer and kill deer about 10% of the time. 90% of the time, the prey escape. What's important is they escape, they run away, they move on. Mm. They're disturbed and they're not staying in one place. At the moment, in the absence of predators, deer can go wherever they like. And of course, they're woodland animals, so they'll spend all their time in the woodland. There's shelter, there's more to eat. And that's why, you know, the woodland remnants are, are all overgrazed. So if we had predators back, they'd be getting moved around, they'd be running across the landscape, and there wouldn't be the same impact. So those are some of the things that have gone wrong because humans have degraded ecosystems. So rewilding and ecological restoration is about correcting those imbalances. And for me, the, in Scotland, in a Scottish context, there's three main aspects to it. The first is we have to have healthy vegetation communities again, because all other life, everything from caterpillars to top predators and all the herbivores in between depend on healthy vegetation. And if we don't have healthy vegetation, there's no habitat for them to live in.
And we've taken a forest that was maybe um, 25 metres, 30 metres tall, uh, big Scots pines, and we've reduced it to overgrazed grass and heather that's maybe two centimetres tall. So you can see all the habitat that's vanished. So we have to have healthy vegetation back. We then have to reinstate or help to recover the ecological processes which are not functioning at the moment. Those are things like natural succession, the development of ecosystems over time because they're not static, predator-prey dynamics, natural disturbance, nutrient cycling. We have perpetual loss of nutrients in the highlands at the moment because sheep and deer are taken away for slaughter and their meat is exported and nothing's ever put back. So we've disrupted all these natural cycles. So we have to reinstate those ecological processes. And then the third key element is we need to um, reintroduce missing species that cannot recover by themselves. Some things, wing things, insects, birds can recolonize areas easily. Um, but species that have been extirpated from the British Isles, uh, particularly the large mammals, the lynx, the bear, the wolf, will never get back here under their own steam. Um, they cannot swim across the, the North Sea, so they will need to be brought back. As the beaver has been reintroduced successfully now, both in, in Scotland and more recently in England, so that's a good example. We've also had some birds of prey reinstated. Um, the sea eagle, the red kite are good success stories like that. So that's the third element then, reintroduction of missing species. And it's not just the, the big charismatic animals. Oftentimes it's the smaller things. Um, uh, the work that Trees for Life, the charity I founded is doing now, includes translocating squirrels, red squirrels, the native squirrel, from areas where they're abundant to isolated forest remnants in the Northwest Highlands of Scotland, where squirrels have been lost. And because those isolated remnants are separated by large areas of treeless ground, Squirrels cannot colonize, they won't cross huge areas with no trees. So they're being translocated. That is a, is a localized reintroduction. So those are the sorts of things that we need to do until we can get more connectivity of habitat again. So I hope that's a, a, a brief, simple explanation of what it means for me rewilding or ecological restoration. No, that's brilliant. You mentioned there that uh, sort of larger predators not only sort of thin the numbers of, you know, for example, deers, uh, sorry, deer, I should say, and other, and other species, but they actually change the animal behaviour. Um, fascinating. Is it feasible to reintroduce wolves and possibly bears and, and, and lynx in Scotland? Well, I think they need to be addressed separately because the species have different requirements, different habitat needs. Um, the bear, I think, is a huge challenge. I'm not sure that will ever be feasible because bears are large, free-ranging animals. And unlike lynx and wolf, they don't show fear of people. And, you know, there are regular encounters in other parts of the world where bears still exist, where people, you know, uh, get attacked by bears, get injured by bears. Um, and I think, you know, that's a very long-term prospect, if ever. Much more feasible is the lynx. Um, the lynx is a solitary animal. There's no records of lynx ever attacking people. And it's also um, an ambush specialist. So unlike wolves, which chase prey for miles and miles, um, lynx lurk, hide in the edge of woodlands and will launch surprise attacks on their prey, which is typically roe deer in a country like Scotland. 
or Sika deer, the non-native deer that we've got here now. And if they don't catch it within about 200 meters, they give up. Now, what that means is that um, if lynx are in woodland areas and people are concerned about sheep predation, which, um, you know, is an obvious risk, um, if you keep your sheep away from the edge of woodland by 200 meters or more, you're going to drastically reduce the likelihood of sheep predation. Modelling by scientists, particularly David Hetherington, who did a PhD on it, has shown that Scotland, even with its depleted forest cover today, could support up to 600 links. So ecologically, it's feasible to have them back. Um, the barriers are not ecological ones. The barriers are human and cultural ones and the attitudes of people. Right. With the wolf, it's somewhere in between. Um, if we had, we could have wolves back tomorrow. They don't need forest habitat. Wolves live in the tundra where there are no trees. All they need is prey. And there's tons of prey in Scotland in terms of red deer. However, wolves being uh, very intelligent animals will also take an easy option if it's there. So they would undoubtedly prey on sheep if they were brought back today. So with the wolf, we need um, before we can realistically consider a reintroduction, we need to actually change the way that sheep are on our land. At the moment, sheep are free ranging all over the highlands of Scotland. Um, and they're there in most places because of perverse subsidies. There's no economic sense to it. It's only because um, farmers can claim massive grants to keep them there. And that's subsidizing the ongoing depletion of the land. So I would love to see those subsidies go to the same people. Those are the people who are connected with the land, but let's subsidize ecological restoration, not ongoing, you know, struggle yeah. to survive with sheep and very poor quality land. So if we did that and also embarked on a re-education program for people, um, because the wolf is the most maligned mammal on the planet, we all grow up you know, under the influence of children's stories and fairy tales about the big bad wolf and little red riding hood and the three pigs. And then when we're teenagers, we usually go and see werewolf movies by Hollywood, all of which demonize the wolf, yeah. which is totally undeserved. You know, um, so we need to actually educate a new generation of people. Uh, about the true nature of the animal. There was an interesting um, experiment done some years ago uh, with uh, I think the UK Wolf Trust who have some tame wolves and they took these wolves to some primary schools uh, somewhere in England and before uh, they arrived the teachers asked um, the children to draw pictures of wolves and they drew all these pictures you know very typically influenced by fairy tales and stories with big fangs and slavering jaws and you know fierce looking animals. They brought the wolves there and the children had a chance to, you know, watch them and see them and be close to them. And afterwards, the teachers asked them to draw pictures of wolves again. And the main feature that they drew afterwards was how big the feet of the wolves were. <laughs> <laughs> very, very interesting and hugely yeah, symbolic. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the sort of thing we need to do before we can realistically have something like the wolf bag. Speaking of changing attitudes, you have... You spoke about how you're really one of the first movers a few decades ago in this area to actually, you know, roll up your sleeves and do something. How have you seen general attitudes or, uh, you know, society at large sort of change over decades um, in terms of its approach towards climate change and attitudes and, and these things? And are you optimistic? 
Well, I could probably talk about that for half an hour. By itself. Oh. <laughs> um, I think in Scotland, at least, there's been a huge um, shift. Uh, there's a lot of people have come to the same understanding. In Scotland, we've got open access. You know, people can walk over the land, you know, as long as it's not somebody and there's right to roam here. So lots of people are into hill walking, climbing Munros, any peak over 3,000 feet is called a Munro, there's 282 of them. So lots of people are out on the landscape. And I think many people are coming to the under, have been coming to the understanding that this is a depleted landscape. There's charities like Trees for Life, there's Reforesting Scotland, uh, there's Rewilding Britain, John Muir Trust, um, the Woodland Trust, all of which have been raising the profile of Scotland's depleted landscape and the need for more trees for many decades now. And that message has really got across. I think if you talk to your average Scottish person, they would tell you, yes, we need more native trees. So I think there's been a huge awakening. And we've also had some, you know, very interesting uh, things happening where it's not just um, the conservation sector that's doing this work. You know, the Forestry Commission or Forestry and Lands in Scotland now, as it's called, has done significant work because they own some of the best remnants of the Caledonian forest. And we've also got private landowners like um, Anders Paulson, Danish man, uh, who owns the Glenfeshi estate, where they've done a drastic reduction of deer cull, uh, drastic deer cull to reduce numbers of deer. And there's been tremendous regeneration of the trees there in what was one of the, the most chronically dying remnants of the Caledonian forest. So we've had that. We've also had success stories with sea eagles uh, and osprey returning and now um, with the beaver reintroduction. And this is really permeated into Scottish um, consciousness and culture. And, you know, we've now got, um, a we've got the Scottish Rewilding Alliance and we've also got a proposal going to the Scottish Government that Scotland should declare itself the world's first rewilding nation. So I think there's been a huge upsurge of interest and of course that is happening uh, throughout Britain but perhaps to a lesser extent in England because, you know, there's not the same opportunities, but beavers have been returned now into Devon and uh, there's, you know, birds of prey, there's the Nep estate, there's things like that happening. There's a lot of good stuff happening. And of course, this is reflected internationally too, where um, back in um, the late 1990s, I started formulating this vision uh, for something much bigger called Restore the Earth, which um, is one of the things that, you know, I sort of first connected with uh, your father about. And for a number of years, I worked on trying to get the UN to declare the 21st century, the century of restoring the earth. Uh, you know, they have International Year of Peace and things like that. So I, we need a century to restore the earth. Well, it didn't happen. But as I'm sure you're probably well aware now, this is the decade for ecological yeah, restoration absolutely. declared uh, um, by the UN starting on the 5th of June this year. So I see there's a huge upsurge of awareness and concern and projects. And I, I travel a lot before COVID and I go and visit restoration or rewilding projects in many different countries. So people everywhere are recognizing that we've depleted the planet, we need to do something about it. So yes, I am optimistic, but there are huge challenges. And of course, the main thrust of our modern day culture is still ever-increasing exploitation of the earth and endless economic growth. And that runs directly counter to restoration and rewilding. So um, there's still a huge amount of work to do, but um, I'm 
excited by the new generation of people who are coming up, by the young people who are seeing that they've got examples now from existing projects of what can be helped, what can be achieved when we work with nature rather than just exploiting and dominating it all the time. So uh, there's a lot to do, but uh, I think we're moving in the right direction, even if if you look at the news, it still seems like it's going the wrong way. Right. It does. It does. OK, so in, in that case, what, what message would you give to sort of you know, younger people who are, you know, as you say, seeing these sort of somewhat horrifying uh, news stories, you know, climate collapse and, and all these sort of things? What, what sort of what sort of message would you like those those people to hear who are sort of setting out on their uh, conservation careers? Well, I think the first thing uh, where it starts for me and for everybody is develop a personal, meaningful personal connection with nature. You know, and do that in your wherever you are. If it's your local area where you grew up and you're still there, do that. If you've moved somewhere else, do that. And one of the great things about the COVID epidemic is um, I've had to focus much more on my local area. I live about 65 miles away from Glen Affric, where most of the ecological restoration work for the Caledonian forest has taken place. Couldn't get there during the lockdowns, so I've gone to the local coast here a few miles away, which is a wonderful sandstone coastline with cliffs and caves and lots of nesting seabirds, and it's wonderful. And there are places like that everywhere, even if somebody is in a major conurbation. You know, there's town parks, there's city parks, there's isolated woodlands along watercourses. Get to know those places and develop a meaningful relationship because most of us today in Britain and throughout the world increasingly grow up deprived of one of the fundamental birthrights of what it means to be human on planet Earth. And that's irrespective of whether we live in a wealthy country like Britain or yeah, in some of the many of the poorer places in the world. And that lost birthright is daily contact with wild nature, with a healthy, intact ecosystem. Fantastic. That was the birthright of the vast majority of humanity for the hundreds of thousands of years we've been mm. on the planet. And we've lost really? that. So that's where the starting point. Make a personal connection with nature because nature speaks to all of us through the beauty of a flower, the germination of a seedling, the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly, or a bird of prey catching its, its mouse or whatever. You know, we all marvel and wonder at those things. And when we keep that in live in ourselves, that is the inspiration to act from, because we need to act from a point of inspiration, of connection, of care and love for the natural world. Because that's what's missing in our mainstream culture. Yeah. It's just seen as an economic resource to exploit. Yeah. So what we need to do is create a new culture that's based on that recognition of our interdependence with nature, our personal connection, where we feel in our hearts, that, yes, this is important. I need to do something about it. And out of that then comes a thought, an idea, an inspiration. And at the moment, most people are educated, you know, very formally through academia, through schools, universities, mm. you know, to a career. What we need to do, actually, I think, is um, balance that out by encouraging people to listen to their hearts, to listen to how nature speaks to them, because nature speaks to all of us in different ways and act on that. 
And that's what I had to do. That's how I started Trees for Life. I had no experience in ecology. I had a degree in electronics, which I've never used, and not much help for growing a forest. <laughs> anyway, I've learned it all by following my heart and my passion. And by acting on that, I've inspired others, created support networks, raised lots of money, bought 10,000 acres of land, planted 2 million trees. You know, not just me, but the charity I founded has done all that. And any of us have the power to do something like that if we listen to our hearts, listen to the call of nature and act from there. And that's what's happening. The rewilding movement, the restoration movement is not coming from the top down. Uh, although the UN has got this umbrella of declaration, but it's happening from the bottom up from local people concerned about their local environment and saying, I need to do something about this. I and my neighbours, my colleagues, um, my friends, we need to do something about this because government, big corporations, they're busy doing something else, you know? Right. So it's coming from one and we have the power to change our world and to re-establish a new relationship between humans and nature, which is, um, is a mutual relationship. There's a, a book I often quote and things like this um, called Ishmael. I don't know if you've come across it, um, written by a man called Daniel Quinn about 20 years ago. It's a deep ecology book. It's a fictional story. And a man answers an advertisement in a newspaper. The advertisement says, teacher seeks pupil, must have an earnest desire to save the world, apply in person. So the, the book, in the book, the person answers the ad and it turns out to be a gorilla is the teacher, a gorilla who's telepathic. And the gorilla is called Ishmael, and it presents a gorilla's eye view of what humans have done to the world. Mm. And you can imagine what that is. Um, and Ishmael describes humans as being in two categories. The first category is the leavers, the hunter-gatherer peoples who essentially left the world as they found it. And there still are a few of those in the remote forests of the Amazon in Borneo, uh, the Bushmen in South Africa. Uh, there's a few of them left, and they basically don't leave any imprints in the world. Ishmael in this book then describes all the rest of humanity from the development of settled agriculture onwards as the takers. And what we do is we take and we take and we take. And of course, we've now reached the, you know, the apogee of that with our modern consumer culture that's taking everything from the planet. You know, it's why we're exploiting the Amazon and oil in the Arctic and the, the krill in Antarctica, everything, you know, we're taking, taking, taking. So that's that book, and there's no future for the takers. We know that. We also can't go back to being leavers. Even if we wanted to be hunter-gatherers, the world could not support um, 7.8 billion hunter-gatherers. Yes. So there's no future for leavers either. We have to become something new. We have to become the givers, where we give back more than we take. Obviously, I still have to take, I eat food every day, I have clothes that I wear, so I take some things from the earth, but I have to give back more. I have to give back life, I have to give back space to our fellow species, and I have to give of my heart, I give my love and my care, because that nurtures the life force of everything. So that's the shift that has to happen, and that is the new human culture that has never existed before. And then I think that would be a wonderful place to stop. Thank you.